This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships and politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. Carl Burkhardt is a professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. He's an award-winning teacher and scholar who has published numerous essays and books in American Public Address with particular attention to the 19th and 20th century oratory. And is a noted expert in rhetorical criticism, editing the leading text in the critical methods. He's also presenting and publishing regularly on U.S. and Italian cinema. He's currently working on a book on coming-of-age movies. It's really great to welcome Carl, my friend Carl, to the show today. And Carl, thanks so much for taking time out of your day. It's a really busy part of the semester. And so I know that it really takes something to to get ready for this. Um, Could you tell me something about what you do here at Colorado State University? Thanks, Greg. Yeah, delighted to be here. And uh, thanks for the introduction. I think that gives a pretty good overview of of my interests. I started out as a scholar of American public address, mostly historical speeches, was trained to do that. In more recent years, I've been interested in film. Those two things may seem to be different, but in my mind, they're linked and that they're both just modes of reaching audiences, of persuading publics. And so I see both public address speeches as well as films as modes of communication and think of them that way. And uh, I'm happy that uh, my the classes that I teach really are linked to the kind of scholarship I'm doing. I think that's the best way to proceed. And so I have that feeling that those two things go hand in hand, teaching and scholarship. Great. It's been wonderful to have you teaching a number of years at, at the university and um really flourish in the film class as well as the American public address classes and, and in the honors program as well. Um, as we as you've just talked about, and as I said in my introduction, you have these kind of two distinct tracks, the film studies track and the American public address. But um, I wanted to talk with you today a little bit about the American public address side of your work. And in particular, I wanted to think, um, help you have you help us think a little bit about the uh, recent inauguration. We just witnessed the inauguration of Joe Biden as president. Inaugurations have a long history in the U.S. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this history and more specifically the role inaugurations have played in U.S. American democracy. Yes, thank you. The, The Biden inaugural certainly made me think of the past, and I hope we have an opportunity to talk about some of the connections to past inaugurals of importance. But of of course, the whole thing started with George Washington, our first president. He gave the first inaugural address, and it was an interesting rhetorical choice for him. The model had always been the king, and many people wanted George Washington to be the king of the United States, but he wanted to be a non-hereditary president. And uh, he gave the very first inaugural, and this set certain patterns that are still with us today. That speech was delivered on April 30th, 1789. Interestingly, delivered in New York City on Wall Street in Federal Hall, which was the seat of our national government. And Washington crowd of people in the streets saw Washington take the oath of office. Then he went inside to the Senate chamber and gave his speech to a joint session of Congress, not the public. The speech was 
very modest. He was expressed modesty and humility for being elected, stressed the honor, talked about the public good, and stated that he was not going to take a salary other than expenses associated with being president. But his, his demeanor, his focus on public good uh, were things that went forward in history. And over time, the inaugural addresses evolved to have at least three basic functions. One is to celebrate our democratic republic and its continuity. Another is to share the president's values and vision for the future. And the third one is to respond to national crises or challenges as they arise. And uh, I think, as we'll get to, Biden's speech certainly does all three of those things, those historical things. Of course, in the, in the old history, the, the candidates didn't compete. They didn't campaign in person the way they do now. So the inaugural address was, uh, in the old days, an opportunity for the president to get to know the newly elected um, executive even to this day, that the newly minted president has a chance to make a good impression and build some goodwill and support for the major goals of their coming administration. So it sounds like, Carl, then, that um, there's something about the inauguration, the, the process of the inauguration, the inaugural speech, the maybe the event as a whole, that really is kind of a marker of, of a, the transfer of power through elections rather than this the, the, the kind of royal system or the, the king system that, that we came out of. Have I, do, do I have that kind of right? That's precisely right. And of course, one of the great points of pride in the United States has been the peaceful transfer of power. Now, it hasn't always been smooth. Thomas Jefferson's inaugural, there were rumors of a coup and it was a very dangerous time when Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated. Abraham Lincoln had to have military soldiers standing in front of him during his first inaugural. And then, of course, the more most recent election, we had a violent incident in the U.S. Capitol. So the peaceful transfer of power has generally been the case, but it's, it's been a tremendous point of pride. And the ritual of the inauguration enacts that, it performs that. It shows the outgoing president and the incoming president chatting amiably and getting along and facilitating this, this transfer of power. So I do think that, that that's a tremendous point of pride for the United States. And, and in most cases, the inauguration is a way of, of celebrating that, appreciating the fact that we've been able to keep this experiment going for a couple centuries. So yeah, I think that that's it precisely. You know, you mentioned kind of what happened on uh, January 6th before the inauguration, and uh, uh, and of course that that came in the context of a of a particular election cycle. But every inauguration really has to respond to specific constraints and opportunities for presidents. So, considering that, what were the major concerns kind of in the rhetorical context, if you will, that President Biden confronted in his speech, and how did the speech respond, or perhaps not respond, to those contextual concerns? Well, I think that's really the main question in my mind when you evaluate an inaugural. And I, I would just say right now that all evidence points to Biden's success in addressing the problems, the concerns, the contextual elements. Recent polls say 83% of the people who were polled 
agreed that his speech was either very good or good, I think those are astonishingly good numbers. So I'm going to go with the assumption that the speech largely achieved its goals. And to talk about what Biden did and what he was facing, if I may, I'd like to just, just briefly talk about a central concept in rhetorical studies called the, the rhetorical situation. If the rhetorical situation says that that a speech is a response to something in society. And when a speaker sees a need to give a speech, they're responding to something that's called an exigence. Uh, that's defined by Lloyd Bitzer as an imperfection marked by urgency. And we can use this kind of language to think about Biden's speech. What did he have to respond to? What was the major exigence or a series of exigencies that he needed to do something about in the speech? In addition to exigence, though, we have this term constraint, and constraint means that these are the obstacles or the limitations that a speaker has to respond to in communicating with an audience. And then finally, we think about the audience. What do they know? What are their ideas, attitudes, values, and beliefs? And those are the three main elements of breaking down a speech like Biden's inaugural. I think that Biden's main challenge was to address some extremely critical kinds of public issues. And one of them might be just simply, and, and the speech reflects this, just to try and bring about a sense of unity to a public that was very badly split for a long time and very badly split during the election. Remember, nearly half of the public voted against Biden, so that's a matter of concern for him. And I think I've heard many people talk about restoring a sense of normality. I think there was a, a, a sense on the part of many people that things were, that this wasn't the United States, that things were spiraling out of control in a way that we're not used to thinking about, uh, that we're not used to withstanding. And so the exigence for the speech is to restore a sense of public order or confidence or, or normality that had been badly shaken by a series of things. COVID-19 being the major one, and Biden himself identified that as his major priority. I think that's on target. Everyone, and I believe virtually everybody in the United States, except for some anti-vaccination um, extremists, uh, <clears throat> believe that COVID-19 is the major job and the thing that the federal government can really deliver better than any other entity. But the, the riot inside the U.S. Congress was uh, shocking. I think many people just really couldn't believe that, it, that something like that was actually happening, as well as uh, protests against racial inequality and, and other issues that were of major concern to the public. And so Biden and his speechwriters, and by the way, presidents have had speechwriters since George Washington, as is to be expected, I think, smart presidents get good speechwriters, that's my opinion. But they needed to, to, to construct a speech that addressed different audiences, those who voted for him and those who didn't. And these various national problems and priorities and concerns and anxieties. So for example, he needed to reassure those on the losing side that he would be the president of everyone and would lead in an even-handed manner and would honor the fact that people had the right to have differences of opinion. And my reading is that he was successful in doing that to a great degree, that it was soothing and reassuring to have a president make these statements. 
But he also needed to reassure his own base that now that he's elected president of the United States, that he's going to carry through with the issues that he campaigned on. And I think he did that as well by referring to specific priorities like racial equity and the environment and uh, other issues of that sort that uh, were very important to the really dedicated uh, backers of Joe Biden. So I think the key to a fitting response, which is the, the, the theory of rhetorical situation says, you should study the situation, consider the constraints, analyze the exigents, and then deliver a fitting response. And I think the key to that is balance. And that's exactly what President Biden and his speechwriting team achieved, I think, to satisfy to some degree the competing audiences and constituencies simultaneously. And it's a common trait of the highly successful political oratory. And we can point to some historical examples um, if you like, but, um, but I think he and his team crafted a speech that got at these things in a balanced way and that addressed different constituencies and different interest groups simultaneously. I really appreciate that notion of balance. I mean, you've, you've detailed a substantial tension, the tension between needing to appeal to kind of all of us as U.S. Americans, but then but then assure the, the folks who, who voted for Biden that, that he's on their side. That seems like a really difficult t tension or ba balance to, to, to make happen. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second, Carl. Is there a particular passage that you think movement in the speech, a formal mo moment that, that captures that balance. I'd be glad to find, find a passage that I highlighted as one that I think gets at the question that, that you asked. And I'm just going to read right from the manuscript. This is the corrected version of the manuscript from AmericanRhetoric.com. To all those who supported our campaign, I am humbled by the faith you've placed in us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. And if you disagree, so be it. That's democracy. That's America. The right to dissent peaceably within the guardrails of, of our republic is perhaps this nation's greatest strength. Yet hear me clearly. Disagreement must not lead to disunion. And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans, all Americans. And I promise you, I will fight as hard for those who did not support me as for those who did. That, that's a really stirring passage, and, and I remember it as well. He's woven together there, hasn't he? So many different parts of, of this exigence that you lay out, the, the problem of, uh, of what happened just a few days earlier, the, the challenges of the, of the overall campaign, but also that, that notion that, that he was uh, addressing us from, from his heart and, and asking, asking and willing to be judged for for who he is. I, I want to use that as a transition here, Carl, to to a kind of putting this speech into a larger context. So the context we just talked about is is that of the immediate campaign and COVID-19 and and the the struggle for racial justice and and the um, riot at, at the Congress. Um, but the speech also fits into a kind of a historical context of other inaugural speeches. You pointed out that we've been giving these speeches um, since uh, Washington was elected, and there's some touchstone speeches. And so I'm wondering if, if you can talk about how Biden's speech might have drawn on some of those resources or fits into the kind of uh, genre of inaugural speeches. Yes, I, 
I, I really think that there are some historical speeches that shed light on Biden's speech. And in addition to that, I'm convinced that that Biden asked his speechwriting team to study inaugural addresses from the past. This is something that John F. Kennedy did brilliantly. He said to Ted Sorensen he wanted a short speech that focused on international affairs and would not have weasel words towards the, our communist adversaries. And he asked Ted Sorensen to study all the great inaugurals of the past, plus Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and it resulted in one of the most celebrated eloquent speeches of all time. I see evidence that uh, Biden's speech was consciously doing that. But to talk about speeches that, that are similar, Thomas Jefferson's um, inaugural is, is really instructive. This was the election of 1800. It was one of the most bitter and divisive elections in all of American history. The people who were opposing Thomas Jefferson, the Federalists, called him a bloody atheist uh, and a, French, a lover of a French anarchy. And the people on Jefferson's faction, they were called the Democratic Republicans or just the Republicans. Uh, they accused uh, John Adams of being a monarchist and an elitist and some authoritarian. It was a, a vicious campaign that resulted in an inconclusive election. In the end, Thomas Jefferson was elected and he had to appear in, in public to give his inaugural address. And one thing about the case of Jefferson that's interesting, the people who hated him and didn't vote for him, they really thought that he was going to be some kind of a, a horrible person, a bloody revolutionary, uh, and so on. And so uh, one of the things that really worked well for Jefferson is he just was a perfectly presentable gentleman with a good demeanor and goodwill. And I think half the trick of an inaugural is overcoming audience expectations in a positive way. I dare say a lot of people wondered if Joe Biden would be able to stand up at the lectern and give the speech. There was so much talk about how he was too elderly and too infirm to even put a paragraph together. And he, I think he exceeded people's expectations with his performance. But the thing about Jefferson's speech that's great, there were these deep divisions and Jefferson's speech had an extremely famous quotation. Remember, one side was called the Federalists, the other side was called the Republicans. And Jefferson said, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. And that absolutely delighted the people on the losing side. You see Joe Biden trying to make a very similar move there in the passage that I read you and, and in some others stressing the fact that people in the United States have many values in common um, and showing yourself to be a person of goodwill. I see a lot of evidence of that Biden is following in the footsteps of Jefferson in that particular case. I, I'm really liking that notion of, uh, of thinking about how Jefferson confronted a similar exigence, it sounds like, where there was this real sense that the other side was in some way not, not just different from us, but but really um, kind of repugnantly different, and, and Jefferson's need, need to, to bind those those differences, and that and that Biden kind of stepped into that same, same situation. And it makes me think of our beginning of our conversation where we talked about how inaugurations as, as a whole kind of have that function of, of transitioning us 
from one place to another, from one campaign to another, from one president to another. I'm wondering if, uh, just to kind of to conclude this this bit of the conversation, if again there's there's a passage to, that that for you kind of has this Jeffersonian sort of feel to it. Yes, uh, and also I just want to to note that if I I'll just quickly make a reference to um, Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural, and Biden quotes that uh, directly in his speech doesn't doesn't say he's quoting Lincoln, but it's just become a part of our national vocabulary, he refers to the better angels of our nature. And uh, that part of Lincoln's first inaugural is so moving. We must not be enemies, but friends. Th this doesn't get at it exactly, but it's, it's a worthy passage that I, that I highlighted for further discussion. We must put this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal, we can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment stand in their shoes. Because here's the thing about life, there's no accounting for what fate will deal you. Some days when you, you need a hand, there are other days where we're called to lend a hand. That's how it has to be. That's what we do for one another. And if we are this way, our country will be stronger, more prosperous, more ready for the future, and we can still disagree. Uh, there are other places in the speech where he essentially says we, we can't be enemies, we have to be friends, we have to be united. All of those things are major themes of Biden's speech. Again, that's one of the passages that, that stood out to me too when I, when I was listening to the, to the speech. And, and I can see how you connected that both to, to Jefferson and then and to uh, Lincoln's first inaugural, the, the sense that we have these better angels, that this ability to, to listen to each other. I think that's a, that's a nice place for us to transition, Carl, to, to the last question, the question that I always like to ask on our Speaking Well podcast, which is, how does this matter for somebody who doesn't maybe spend a lot of time thinking about inaugural speeches? Um, uh, you and I can spend a lot of time talking about this. We're both trained as rhetoricians, and we we care about public oratory. Um, but other people may not quite have that same same impulse. But my sense is that you and I also agree that studying these these particular speeches, but also being able to study public oratory matters to us more broadly. So I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on some lessons that we might learn from thinking about Biden's inaugural or thinking about inaugurations or thinking about public oratory? What are some lessons that we can learn, some kind of life hacks? Sure. I, 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 of course, I teach these classes on the history and criticism of American public address. And on the first day of class, I'll say to students that now I'm aware that some of you may be here because it was the only opening, it was the only class you could get into. But by the end of the semester, I hope to convince you that this is really a useful and practical study. It's just not some dusty topic that doesn't have relevance in the real world. For one thing, when you study a speech that's well crafted, and I, I conclude that Biden's speech is very good, uh, only time will tell uh, exactly where it will settle in the pantheon of inaugural addresses, but it, it did a great job. You can learn a lot from studying that, and you can learn about the use of language, you can learn about uh, metaphors, and you can, you can learn about the rhythm of speech, and you can learn about how to project a positive character, uh, positive character traits, goodwill and honesty and straightforwardness and so forth, which I think 
Biden was able to do. And this idea that we study speeches of the past or study speeches, noteworthy speeches, it goes back, to, it goes back in history to the ancient world where uh, Demosthenes studied the speeches of, of Pericles and Cicero studied the speeches of Demosthenes and Edmund Burke studied the speeches of Cicero and so on. It's, it's a way to make yourself a better speaker. But in addition to that, the, the concepts that we've been talking about today, uh, if, if you just take a basic principle of rhetoric, such as the rhetorical situation, and you look at exigence and constraints and audience, even in your personal life and everyday conversation, this is just a useful way of thinking about communication. So suppose you have a disagreement with somebody in your family. Well, if you're going to engage in, in a, an argument or if you're going to engage in persuasive communication, think, think a moment uh, be, before you behave in a certain way. Think, what is the problem to be solved here? What is the exigence? What's the thing that needs to be fixed? And then what constraints do I have? What, what can be said and cannot be said? in this personal situation or this social situation. I mean, we know that the kind of language that you would use at a funeral if you're eulogizing somebody is not the kind of language that you would use if it was open mic night at the comedy club. You need to think about constraints. You need to think about audience expectations. And then you need to think about the person whom you're addressing. What, what have they experienced? They, they may have experienced things that are completely, uh, that, that will cause them to interpret your words in a completely different way than you intended. So I think these basic rhetorical principles are useful when you have to give a persuasive speech in a formal situation, but I think that they also are useful in, in one's own life in communicating with people and, and ethically trying to influence people, but also in listening to communication and knowing when it's sound and, and uh, and, and being able to judge it in some way. So uh, that, that's my answer to your question. I, I do think it has utility, a big surprise. <laughs> well, you know, Carl, that, that, that I agree with everything you just said, that, that the thing that, that you've taught us in, in this time together and that the previous folks on Speaking Well have come back to again and again is this, this deep interweaving of, of self and and other and and then the communication as kind of the thing that that either weaves us together or or perhaps uh, drives us drives us apart and that's what makes studying communication and thinking about communication and doing communication so powerful and so so important. Carl, it's been such a pleasure to to chat with you today about Biden and inaugural speeches and the history of the inauguration in, in the U.S. It, it affirms for me again the, the importance of, of the work that communication scholars and rhetoricians do. Um, so thank you really uh, so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Greg. It's been my pleasure. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well. Be well.